So some of you here are old enough to remember something called the Faulkner Burkine Marriage Seminar. And you know, they, they Paul Faulkner and Carl Burkine did those everywhere, and Karen and I were actually here in nineteen eighty nine in this location when they did their seminar here. And um I got to uh study with both of them later at Abilene Christian, and then years after that, when, when Karen and I were living in Lake Jackson, we visited with the Faulkners, and they, they worked, they had a ranch, and they worked with a little church near Driftwood, Texas, and it's about as small as it sounds, okay? Even smaller, it's even smaller than that, um, but I remember, I can still remember a story that he told me. He had made friends with... Um, a preacher in town who was of um, some other tribe, okay, and they, they, didn't, they didn't practice adult baptism. That, that's important to the story because uh, they had an adult that wanted to be baptized, and they didn't have a baptistry, so they asked, could we use the baptistry at the little church you're working with? So Paul says, yes, that's fine. I'll set everything out for you. You, you just have it right there. I can't be there to assist you, but I'll give you the keys, and um, you just go right ahead. Well, a week goes by, and the, the preacher calls him, and he says, um, Faulkner, he says, uh, that baptism will kill a man. And he, sa- he said, what, what, what are you talking about? Did it go bad? And he said, I'm telling you, this guy we baptized, we put him in the re- waders, got him down there, they filled up, and we like not to get him back up out of the water. You have to know your instructions for baptism, but no one teaches you these things. No one teaches you who wears which outfit and what magic words to say. If you were baptized, there was at some point some statement about you receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I hope you didn't discard that the same way we often discard our VBS perfect attendance certificates. Because you'll make it to heaven and you'll be fine in this life without that VBS certificate. But you can't get through it without that filling of the Holy Spirit, okay? That's important. That matters. And whether or not that was tacked on at the end of the words that were spoken, in our text today in Ephesians, you'll see just how important that is. Because we weren't filled up with water We were baptized in water, but we were filled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, look with me at Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read it for you, so you can either read it in your text, or you can just listen. Hear the Word of God. Paul says, Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always. And for everything, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What you've got here is, is, and I've been telling you about this in Ephesians, and I 
I hope you remember. But if this is the first time you've heard this, then go ahead and jot this down. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is talking about the will of God. And the will of God turns into a plan of God. It's the same thing, his will, his plan. Because when God wills to do something, he goes to work on it. And there's a plan. And long before creation, long before you and I came along, God had this will to do something wonderful with this world. And despite the sin that corrupted it, God is working on it. And so God works in Jesus Christ. And he raises Jesus Christ from the dead. And he enthrones Jesus Christ and seats him at his right hand and gives him authority. And then he does the same thing with us, raising us with Christ, seating us with Christ. And God is, is working out immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And then chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul now says, if that's the plan of God, if that's the will of God, then here's how we live out the will of God. So he tells us who we are, and then he tells us what we're living for. And the first thing he says, and he'll have command words. And these are very specific words. You, you can see them in, in his language. He'll say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. And one of the first ones is, make sure that you conduct your lives in a way that's worthy of that calling, of that plan of God, of the, of the choosing that he made in choosing you. And, and then in chapter 515, you begin to see four of these command words. I think somebody's speaking in tongues over here. So. <laughs> oh, I was rude. I was mean. Uh, got your attention, right? Okay. So somebody's phone's talking to him. It's a. I don't even know where it's coming from, so don't feel bad. Uh, the. Uh, besides, I'm glad that your phone's talking to you because some people in here are talking to each other. So or back in the back. All right, we with me? You with me? All right, here we go. Be filled with the Spirit, because he's got three commands there. He says, uh, watch how you live, and then he describes it. You're going to be wise. You're going to make the most of an opportunity. And then he says, don't be foolish, and he's going to describe that. He's going to say, instead, what you should be doing is understanding the will of God, his plan. And then he says, don't get drunk on wine. He says, that's debauchery, and you need to go look that up, okay? And then... His next command, be filled with the Spirit. That's an imperative. That's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And then he's going to describe it, and he's going to describe it with four different verbs. He says you're going to be addressing, you're going to be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This conversation in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs goes on between one another. And then you're going to be singing and making melody. And now it goes upward. You're going to be singing and making melody in your heart to God. And then you're going to be giving thanks for everything, for all things. You're going to be giving thanks to God. You're going to be doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. And then the last one that describes the command. By the way, these four things are not commands as much as they are descriptions of the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They all fall into that, word, that verb. He says the last one then is submitting yourselves. Now, we don't always see that in English, but it's there in the original. And, and, and that submitting yourself, that, that tw 21st verse, sometimes that gets chopped off of the rest of this. 
so that we think that the first three just have to do with one hour on Sunday, and then that last one is the preface for what comes up, because what's coming after this is a discussion about church and family. And so verse 21 gets left out, but I'm telling you, it's part of the set. You've got to collect all four. That's what being filled with the Spirit is all about. It's described in those four ways, four actions. But we like this submitting verse because I think, I think it's especially been preferenced over history because that submission word gets really uh, drawn in close to the first word of the next verse, which is wives. <laughs> and, and, and so now we've got this, this description of wives, husbands, children, and parents. And slaves and masters? If you were running for office in first century Ephesus and you were running on a conservative family values platform, this would be your platform. Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. You would be describing that as the traditional household. Now, we get two-thirds of that. The last one is not and should not be part of our view of a traditional household. But it's the world that they knew. And it, I, I, I think what it can do for us is this. Not that we try to find some way to adapt that, but that this just makes it clear to us what is being said here. It's going to make us pay attention to God's Word even closer, realizing that there is some difference between us and the first century people in Ephesus. I mean, imagine it. Many of you have gone to different places around the world, and you notice how different the culture is. Even if it's something as simple as they drink different flavors of soda pop that you would never imagine. Now, can you imagine how different it might be between us and first century Ephesus? But that doesn't mean that God's Word is any different. It just means that we need to pay attention and listen to it as well. What is going on with these different statements to wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters? Especially if that last set doesn't speak to us. Are these rules for everyone in a family? Well, if they, if they are rules for everyone in a family, what about the people in our families who don't fit into one of those categories? Because we have them. I mean, we have relatives and cousins, and we have people who aren't really our family members, but they're as close as family members. And it makes us ask this question, is the church more of a family? Because I think it's too easy for us, just like we've separated verse 21 out from that instruction to be filled with spirit. And being filled with spirit also means we're going to be submitting to one another Sometimes it's easy for us to take the family and rip it out of the church, and you've got church, and you've got family, but one hour a week, families come together and make church, and then we dismantle church like a tent, we go back to being family, then we come back together, and we reform church, and then we go and we become family, and that would be different than what they would experience, not only in the first century, but in many places around the world today, where church and family are indistinguishable. In, in Ephesus, they would have met in homes. They may have met in the home of a man who was a 
a husband and a father and a slave owner. And if that man had become a follower of Christ, guess what? All of the people in his household would have probably followed his faith. I know, we're saying, well, wait, everybody's got to make a decision. Well, they can catch up to the decision that's made for them. But how do I know this? Read Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. He and his household are baptized. I mean, imagine it. I I like to believe there's some teaching that goes on, and these people do come to Christ, and I think they own that. But at the same time, the way that it's explained in Acts and what we know about the culture, the Philippian jailer comes home and says, guess what, folks? We got a new religion today. They follow his lead. But now look at it this way, too. If you're in one of those upper slots, the slave, the wife, the child, and you follow Jesus and your household doesn't, that's going to be difficult. Because you're going to, and to follow Jesus, you're going to go in a different direction than your household. If you want me to make this all easy and fit together into these nice categories, I can't do that for you. Because that's not what the Word of God is doing here. In fact, it's asking us to think about the people who don't fit into these roles and whether or not they're our family. What about the unmarried? What does this say to them? What about the parents who have no children? What does this say to them? And what about the children who grow up in the church? Oh yeah, they've got parents, but maybe they don't even know their parents. Or maybe their parents aren't part of the church at all. This text and events have been making me think of this little church building and the people who meet there. Next Sunday will be the 75th anniversary of of the Winslow Church of Christ. For 75 years, they've met in that little green and white building off the side of Highway 71. You probably passed by there many times if you drove old 71. It's like a family home to me. And I've been reflecting on how my life intersects with that location. I was attending that church as a teenager at a time when my parents were not affiliated with any congregation. I was a child who had no parents in the church. I was baptized there. I preached my first sermon there. And even knowing that there was some connection there, Karen and I were married there in that building. I think of the different people who made up my family there. It was my uncle and his wife who left us last year. They drove me there until I was old enough to drive myself. And when I got there, they introduced me to a lot of people who would be my spiritual grandparents. I don't know any other way to describe it. They weren't like parents. They were more like grandparents because no matter how horrible the sermon was, and they were horrible, they encouraged me. And I thank you for all the grandparents that I have here now. Because no matter how horrible the sermon is, you tell me there's something good in it. I can still see in my imagination Brother Dilwyn Paxton. And he always said at the furthest point in the pews, that if you were standing in the back in the foyer, which I learned in time was a popular place for men to stand during church, and and if you stood back there, he was always at the furthest on the right and to the front, except for that front pew, which as we learned very quickly was only for sinners. 
That's a joke. Um, But he would sit right under the clock, and when that second hand would pass 12, right on the hour, he would begin worship on Sunday night. He didn't fit into any of those neat categories. Because he was old when I met him, and he had been a bachelor for a long time. He had no wife. He had no children. As far as I know, he only had two suits for church, a gray one and a tan one. That's all he needed. But he could always walk around in that front yard, and he could find a four-leaf clover. I even know of occasions where he found a five-leaf and a six-leaf clover. And I can remember all these facts about him, but here's the thing I really knew about him. That when it was my night to lead singing, if you think the sermons were horrible, you should have been there for that. But when it was my night to lead singing, and I ended up with one of those difficult songs. You know, those barbershop, Jericho Road, bebopping 1930s songs. When I had one of those, I could look at Dillwyn and he would start the first note for me. Was he my spiritual father? Was he my spiritual uncle? Was he my brother in Christ? I don't know, but he was family. Here's a connection, and these connections just continue to uh, amaze me as I've thought about them. One of our own members here, Kevin Gann, many of you may not know this, but uh, uh, Kevin and his family, they were members there at Winslow for a while. Kevin's father, Norman, preached there. And Norman's the man who baptized me because... As others taught me and taught me what to do, it was Norman Gann then that night that I came forward and he says, well, I've got, I'm going to baptize him. And I talked to him as he baptized me and I remember Kevin and his sisters and his family being there. But let me just follow these connections out because I was talking to Rick this week about it. Their son Connor was in Guatemala on the mission trip working with Paul Kreitz. Now, think about this, folks. Kevin's son Connor is doing good work in Guatemala, working with a man, Paul Kreitz, who was nurtured by a man, me, in his faith, and encouraged to go into ministry, a man who was baptized by Connor's grandfather, Norman. Now, that's one story of many, but you know many other stories like that. That that story can be told dozens and dozens of ways with different connections, and you know them too. That those sort of connections do not exist in companies or nonprofits or institutions. Not really. Not the way they do. The only other thing it comes close to is a family. That's a family connection. Before I was baptized, there were so many others there who nurtured my faith as well. We didn't have elders in that little congregation. So if there was something that we didn't like, we had nobody to blame but ourselves. Be good to your elders. They watch over your souls. But we also had nobody to lead us, nobody to give us vision. We all just did the best we could. And we worked together. And we had business meetings. <laughs> we didn't have elders meetings. I don't know why, because everybody knew everybody else's business. I don't know now why we had to meet about it. But there I was, 14 years old, and I get included in this, and I get brought into the room. And one night man there and he just he just left us and recently graduated went on passed away Un, unexpected but hard-working farmer a man by the name of jc hughes and i think he did this in some way so that he didn't have to but whatever it was he looked at me and he said tonight you're chairing the meeting i'm 14 
And I said, how am I supposed to do this? And he said, just ask if anybody's got any new business and then ask somebody to lead a prayer. And what he was implying to me, this is the way I remember it, is don't you let a lot of time pass between ask for new business and call for a prayer. In other words, get that done quick. And I don't know what was discussed, but I walked out of there at 14 thinking, I'm important too, I matter. And that's the way it is in a family, and those people were my family. I was in the foyer of that church building when I was older. I think I was in college then, and I had preached a sermon. They had gotten a little bit better, and I could preach a full sermon and not just one of those Wednesday night specials. And our preacher's son, a man named Wayne Dockery, who was not even a member of that church, he ministered at some church in Texas. We don't even know if it was 100% kosher, that, that church in Texas. I mean, it's in Texas to start with. But he was there in the foyer, and I had preached that sermon. And I'm shaking hands, and I'm thinking, you know, he's going to give me a compliment, pass him on down the line. And he will not let me away from the handshake. Because he wants me not just to have a compliment, but he keeps telling me, you've got a gift. And that wasn't a compliment He wanted me to understand that a gift from God is a trust that you have to give back to God's people. And he kept saying, along with you've got a gift, he would say this word as well, don't you squander it. And I spent months and really years thinking about that. But if not for that relationship with that man... I think the path of my life would have looked very differently. And these people, even Wayne, who is not a member of of that congregation. But what was he? Was he my Christian brother? Was he my my father in Christ? I, I don't know, but he was family. And over the years, different groups have been my spiritual family. And yes, this group has been my spiritual family. And I want to thank you because here's the thing I also thank you about. Regardless of whatever relationship I have with you as an employee and you hired me in 2003 and all of that, on the other hand, you've also been a family to my family. And I thank all of you who've seen my children, not as the preacher's kids, but as your children in faith. And as your brothers and sisters. And as your nephews in the faith. Or whatever the arrangement is. And I thank you for not seeing my wife as the preacher's wife, but as your sister. Or whatever spiritual family relationship is appropriate there. I'm telling you all of this to tell you that we've got to see that the church is family, and the way it becomes family is we begin to understand verse 21, not just in terms of the family that shares a name on the mailbox, but in terms of the family who worships together, and it is a call to all of us to submit ourselves to one another. Did you notice that? That we submit ourselves to one another, not to the rules, not to the categories. See, it'd be the easiest thing in the world for me to to turn this, to describe this simply as a set of rules and say, here are the rules, here are the categories, here, submit yourself to these rules. And that's easier. Because if you submit yourself to the rules and I submit myself to the rules, we all submit to the rules. And it becomes spiritual policy. It becomes spiritual politics. But Scripture tells me to submit myself to you. 
And it tells you to submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when he's talking about husbands and wives, and guess what? He gives you the answers. Look at verse 32, chapter 5, verse 32. Church is listening to this, and they're thinking, you know, he's talking about husbands and wives. All the husbands in the congregation are thinking, wives, you better pay attention to this. And all the wives are thinking, he's got a lot more to say to you. You better pay attention to this. But in verse 32, he breaks in, and whether you're married or not, he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wait a second. He's going through this traditional family values household talk, and really what he wants us to see is Christ and the church. How many times has he used family language? Christ is the bride, or the church is the bride. Christ is the groom. God is the good father. Christ is the obedient son. He's even used household language, servants and masters, that we don't really understand that well, but they would see it as household family language. Christ is the Lord. Even Paul, how does he introduce himself to the Ephesians? As a slave of Christ. He's saying that the fellowship of believers is the truest picture of family that you will ever see. And what he's doing is he's using, he's using the family as a way of describing the church, but then he's turning the mirror around and he's saying, but the church and its relationship with Christ tells us how families are supposed to be as well. And it can all be summed up in that statement, that 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 picture, that description of being filled with the Spirit in verse 21, that along with the the singing and the speaking to one another and the giving thanks, there's one more action, submitting yourselves to one another, to one another, not the rules, out of reverence for Christ. And that's the mission of submission. Submission doesn't come out as a good word in our language it has not only all kinds of bad meanings, but, but even in its best understanding, it's still something that we shy away from. But what he means by it is he means it is setting everything in order. It's setting things up the way that they're supposed to be. And when we start thinking about our church family relationships, husbands, wives, children, parents, spiritual aunts and uncles, grandparents, friends, brothers, sisters, people that we worship with, when we set those in order, they really find their place when we all submit to Christ. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to submit to you first, that we will find that our lives make the most sense when we understand that you are Lord We are your servants. We are God's children. You are the groom. We are the bride. Let us set ourselves in that relationship, Lord. And then fill us with that spirit so that we may appropriately submit ourselves to one another. Father, we desire to be the kind of family that will nurture faith in one another. And that we will reach out to others in this world that you love. And we will help them order their life in such a way that they find it placed appropriately beneath your rule, beneath your lordship, and in relationship 
to everyone else that you love. Father, we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. When you have a problem, you go to family. So if you have something today that's on your heart, we're going to stand, we're going to sing this song. I want you to come to your family, and I want you to come to Christ. Let's stand and sing. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. 